We've been in this series in 2 Samuel for quite some time now, and today, in fact, is week number 24. There will be two more Sundays in the book of Samuel after today. But the problem is that the end of the book of Samuel does something weird. The end of the book that we call 2 Samuel, the second volume of the book of Samuel, the, the end does something weird. Uh, we've had mostly chronological stories so far, and we've seen David become the king. We saw David on the run while Saul, the previous king, was trying to kill him. We heard Samuel talk to God previously, and God said to Samuel, I'm looking for a man after my own heart, and then God picked David to be that guy. And so we've been tracking this story about God chasing down the person who will chase back and, and pursue God, and we've been looking at that for the past you know, quite some time. But here at the end, the story kind of tails off. It does something a little bit weird um, here at the end. And so I want to just highlight for you something that the narrator is doing in this final section. The narrator does three things. And this week, we're going to talk about one of them. Next week, another one. And the third week, uh, a third thing. The narrator does three things and mixes them together. The first thing the narrator does is the narrator gives us um, a, a list of the people in David's life that are just, you know, his heroes, the people that are, that are keeping him going. Uh, he lists those people. We're going to talk about them today and two stories, a couple stories that show up in there. And then the second thing the writer does is the writer wants us to know that David is the king who takes the things that go wrong and makes them right. He's a king of redemption. He's a king, even when he himself is the one who makes the mistake, he's also the king who can then make it right again. And so there's this story of other people in David's life. There's this story of two different times when David made a bad situation right again. And then there's this weird section in the middle where David acts like a prophet, where David, like, he, he shares things that are, are uh, going on in the future, and he speaks like a prophet. And it's as if at the end of the book of 2 Samuel, the narrator has this idea that he wants us to know that David is the kind of, kind of king who brings redemption, and David is the kind of king who is sort of a prophet, and David is also a kind of king who defeats his enemies in collaboration with others. There's these three kind of intertwined themes. Now, the way the narrator does it is he does theme A, then theme B, then theme C, then theme C, then theme B, then theme A, and he does it in reverse order. And so since I'm not going to talk about all three of them today, we're going to split them up over the next three weeks, today I'm going to talk about theme B, the middle themes in there, the theme of David with all of the heroes around him. Next week we're going to talk about David making the wrong thing right, and then the last week we're going to talk about David taking the place of a prophet. And so to get ourselves really into it, you're going to have to jump around in some passages with me. And as we get through it, you're just going to have to trust me that we're jumping around to some good places. But then also, I encourage you to read it for yourself over the next uh, week and, or a couple weeks and get all of those themes repeated as you look through them. So we're starting in chapter 21, and we're going to skip all the way ahead to verse 15. That's where we're going to start. And in verse 15, it says, once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. And so again, we've already been told that David defeated the Philistines. So this is a battle that takes us back into the past. And none of the stuff that we're reading here at the end for these next three weeks, none of this stuff is chronological. All of this stuff is theme-based. And so he's fighting the Philistines. We're going all the way back to some Philistine battle. It says, once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. Pause there for just a moment. When was the last time you watched a superhero movie? And in the midst of the climactic battle, the superhero says, hang on, guys, I just need to take a break. I'm going to sit down here for a little bit. I'm a little tired. You just don't see that. This is one of those moments where the use of the word exhausted is intended to show us that David is not a superhero. No matter how great he's been, no matter how amazing he's been, he is not a superhero. He's David, normal dude, 
David. He became exhausted. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed 300 shekels and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. There's a lot of stuff in there. Just look at your footnotes there and you'll see that 300 shekels is about like seven and a half pounds, which means he's got a bronze spearhead and the bronze on the end of his spear is seven and a half pounds, almost 10 pounds. You know, and holding a spear that has 10 pounds of weight on one end of it means that either the whole spear has to be massively heavy or you have to have massively powerful wrists because it's just going to twist on you. And so this is a picture of a dude that we aren't told is big, but we have to understand he's a giant. He's just as big perhaps as Goliath was. You know the story of David and Goliath. And this guy is just in the same vein as that. And he says he's going to kill David. But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, saying, Never again will you go out with us to battle, so that the light of Israel, the lamp of Israel, will not be extinguished. I'm going to pause here again for just a little moment. This is, this is another picture of perhaps why David hasn't been going out to the battlefield very much recently. David's not a young man anymore. And maybe the skills that he had when he was younger, he no longer has. And maybe the energy he had when he was younger, he no longer has. Maybe he's just out of shape. I don't know what the situation is. But they're telling him, David, you're done with your fighting days. Let us take it from here. Let's keep reading the rest of this little story here. In the course of time, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. At that time, Shibakai, or Sibakai, the Hushathite, killed Saph, one of the descendants of Rapha. Okay, so Rapha is one of the bad guys, and his descendants are these big guys. Okay, so two descendants of Rapha we've seen. And then Sibakai is a Hushathite, which means he's on David's side. Sibekiah is on David's side. In another battle with the Philistines at Gob, Elhanan, son of Jair, the Bethlehemite. Okay, so he's from Bethlehem. You guys know Bethlehem. He killed the brother of Goliath, the Gittite, who had a spear with a shaft like a weaver's rod. In still another battle, which took place at Gath, there was a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He also was descended from Rapha. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, killed him. These four were descendants of Rapha in Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. It's a little story here. Four small snippets. There, was, there were three guys descended from Rapha, and one guy who's the brother of Goliath. You are intended to understand that these are giants. These are giants. And what's fascinating about it is that not only are these giants, these are four giants, including one who lives in Gath, where Goliath was from, including another one who's the brother of Goliath, four giants, and guess what happens? David does not defeat them. See, there's nothing in this story that we can sort of qualify as super spiritual, right? There's no time when God descends here and he's like, okay, so here's the moral of the story. It, it, that doesn't show up. We have to do a little bit of interpretive work here to kind of understand what our takeaway is from it. And so I've got four lessons that I want to share with you, four observations that I have based on this little section here. And then we're going to jump ahead and I'll give you some observations from later on in chapter 23. But four little observations here, I think will help us to understand something really important about David and something really important about us as well. And the first one is this, except for one moment, one time in front of one giant, that giant being Goliath, Except for that one moment, David needed other people. See, when you hear the story of David, most of the time the first thing that comes to our minds is the story of David and Goliath. 
And the story of David and Goliath is the story of a giant standing in front of the armies of Israel saying, someone come out here and fight me. If you beat me, then we'll surrender to you. And if I beat you, then you need to surrender to us. One giant by himself and no one from Israel will step forward. But David, the teenage boy, will step forward and he, in maybe a little bit of arrogance, but definitely in a lot of confidence, he steps forward and he says, I come to you in the name of the Lord. And he knocks Goliath out with a stone slung from a sling, and then he goes up and he cuts Goliath's head off with Goliath's own sword. That's an amazing story. And it's the only story where David is by himself. See, aside from that one moment where the whole nation needed one person to step up, Aside from the one moment where one person was needed, the whole rest of the story that we have paid attention to for the last couple of months, the whole rest of the story, David is constantly surrounded by someone else or a a group of people. He's got Jonathan, his best friend. He's got uh, a priest who gives him some provisions. He's got a ragtag group of men that surround him. David is the kind of guy who he needs people. We get this impression of David as some superhero dude, but he's a guy who needed other people. Two of my favorite quarterbacks in the NFL have been John Elway and Peyton Manning. I was so excited when Peyton Manning went to the Broncos because the Broncos have been my team for like forever. When I went to seminary, that's the graduate school that pastors go to, I moved to Denver in 1997. And in 1997, the fall of 97 was the first, the beginning of the season where John Elway finally won his first Super Bowl. He had been to a couple Super Bowls before then, a number of them, like three others before then. And he had been trounced in all of them. And you got to know John Elway in his prime, he was one of these quarterbacks that you could totally just trust to take control of the game. There have been multiple final minutes of the game kind of game-winning victory situations where the quarterback of the NFL will just sort of take over a team and he'll win. And a lot of them were done by John Elway. He was like our family's beast. In fact, I remember my sister one day had as a plan of hers that she was going to fly out to Denver to buy a car from John Elway's dealership so then she could drive it back to California because she was so enamored with that whole situation until she learned she would not meet him at his dealership and then it went out the window. But nonetheless, John Elway was like one of these beastly quarterbacks who could do anything except win the Super Bowl. He never won the Super Bowl in his prime. When he was at the peak of his performance, his team never got the final trophy. And in 1997, when we moved to Denver, they began a season that was empowered by Terrell Davis, the running back. Terrell Davis was an amazing running back. And it was because of him that the team did so well. They went to the Super Bowl. And in the Super Bowl, in fact, Terrell Davis got the MVP of the Super Bowl that year. And the Broncos won. And I was so happy for John Elway. But the key was he, no matter how impressive he was, never won on his own. In fact, the, only, the first time he won a Super Bowl, the next year they repeated it. It was amazing. I'm not going to get into that story. But the first time he won the Super Bowl, he literally was not the MVP. We look at David and we look at other superheroes and we think to ourselves, man, they have to be the person who's always on top. And then we look at ourselves and we say, I have to be the person who's on top. If I'm going to experience victory, I have to be the person who, ex- who does the victory. It's not good enough for me to just be on the team. I don't want to get the participation trophy when the rest of the team wins the championship. I want, to, I want to take the final shot. And yet that's not the way real life works. Peyton Manning, when he went to the Broncos, it was the exact same story. He had a, a pretty amazing year and everything, but the year they won the Super Bowl with the Broncos, Peyton had his worst career, his worst year of his entire career. It was horrific. He was one of the worst quarterbacks in the entire league that year. 
and they won the Super Bowl on the strength of their defense. Listen, it doesn't matter who your hero is. Every hero, in order to be what they are, they need people around them. I want to move ahead because the second little observation I have from this story is similar, but it's also super important for you and for me. Except for that one moment standing in front of that one giant that one time, David was also never on his own. I already said this once. You can follow the story of David throughout his entire time. He was never on his own. He was always surrounded by these people. And that's a really important thing because if you were here last week or if you paid attention to the message last week, then you heard a time when David suddenly learned that his son was trying to become the king and David decided to run away. He packed up his bags. He left the palace. He left Jerusalem. He ran away. He's like, oh my goodness, I can't stand up against my son Absalom. We're gone. And he left. And the thing that breaks my heart about that situation is that David was literally surrounded by giant killers. He was surrounded by giant killers. He had no reason to feel like he had somehow lost and he needed to run away. He was surrounded by people even though he couldn't see the victory that was in their hands with him and for him. This has been a rough couple of years. And I've been through many days where I felt alone. And I'm sure you've felt that too. I'm sure you've had many days where you felt like for some reason you were just on your own. But I want to remind you that feeling alone is not being alone. Feeling alone is different from being alone. So many of us have so many people in our lives that are just ready to be there, step into the situation, just to be with us. And David's a perfect illustration of someone who just, at that one moment, forgot. But except for one time in front of one giant, he was always surrounded by people. The third observation I have from this story is that except for that one moment, that one time in front of that one giant, David also shared victory glory. The glory of the victories that he experienced were shared. Did you notice that? The last verse that I read there, it says, these four were descendants of Rapha and Gath, and they fell at the hands of David and his men. David gets credit for that. David was exhausted. He didn't beat any of these four giants. He didn't didn't beat any of them. And yet at the end of the story, David gets some of the credit. And what's fascinating is that for the whole rest of the story, these other men have shared in David's victories too. The victory was shared. But here's my favorite part. My favorite observation from this little story is something that I never noticed before. David, because of one moment, in front of one giant, he inspired four more. Do you remember when David found out about Goliath? The courage and the boldness that it took for teenage David to step out in front of that giant all by himself. But because David did that one moment, now it's years later, and there's four of them There's four guys beating four giants. And we are told that they are from Rapha. We are told that they're from Gath. We're told that one is a brother of Goliath specifically to make us think about this. David did not beat these four guys, but they were still beaten because four other guys stepped up. No one stepped up when it was Goliath, but after Goliath, at least four guys stepped up into it. And this is one of the interesting things about our lives. Uh, We tend to believe that our job is to fight the giant. And then once that giant falls, to fight the next giant. And then once that giant falls, to fight the next giant. But it might just be that my real job is to help someone else feel empowered to fight a giant. 
I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But I, I want to give you, based on these four observations, I want to give you two life lessons. Now, these are just from me. I think they touch on an important theme in Scripture. I think they are true, but I'm not saying that, like, the Bible tells you this in this particular case. These are just my pieces of advice. You can take them or leave them if you want, but I think they're really, really valuable to you. So here you go. The first one is this. You and I are never alone unless you choose to be. We are never alone unless we choose to be. The truth of the matter is that there have been times in my life when I have felt alone. And I woke up in a home with other people and I spent the day feeling alone. And then I ate dinner with a bunch of people. And then I spent the evening sitting next to a bunch of people and feeling alone. And that whole aloneness thing is just a lie. It's not true. You are never alone unless you choose to be. So if there's ever a moment in your life where you think to yourself, I'm just, I'm on my own here. If there's ever a moment when you think to yourself, I I can't do this, I've, I've got no support. If there's ever a moment where you feel like you are lost in the darkness of loneliness, know that that's a lie. And if you don't have anyone that you know you can call, let me remind you that we now have a church special chat app. You can go to our church chat system and actually just type in there, hey, I'm feeling alone, and you'll be surprised at who offers to buy you a cup of coffee or soda or whatever it is that you might want to consume at that moment in time, or just to go for a walk down in one of the parks or something. Because here's the thing. We are a community here. We are a family here. And I'm going to make you a promise. Until God sees fit to somehow take me away, you have my promise. I'm never going to give up on, it, on any of you. And if you need something, you're like, I just need to talk to someone. I just need to understand that someone else is there. You could call me. If you don't want to call me, you could call my wife. You could call any of the phone numbers that are currently on the backside of the note sheet listing off the different small group people. And you can type into the chat or something along those lines. Listen, you are not alone unless you choose to be. And I'm encouraging you not to make that choice. I'm encouraging you to embrace the fact that you have a family at least here. Secondly, I also want to let you know that our job is not to achieve things after things. Our job is to inspire, not only achieve. Yeah, there are going to be some times when no one else is stepping up and there's a giant that needs to be slain. There's going to be some times when there is a big obstacle and no one else is stepping into that place to tackle it. There are going to be times when God whispers into your heart that this is your moment to step into the spotlight for a moment. And your job is to go ahead and do so. Your job is to step into that place and be that person at that time for that cause, but to see it as a moment when you are inspiring others to possibly do the same. Because our job is not to just fight one giant at a time. Our job is to inspire and empower others to step into what God has made them to be. And so we get ourselves so much into this place. I I tell you, it's true for me. I get myself so much into this place where I feel like I need to tackle the next big thing. And sometimes I don't. Sometimes what I really need to do is invest in the next person who will tackle the next big thing. David knocks down one giant and ends up killing five. Right? He didn't fight five but he killed five. You see what happens there? By employing the inspiration, he multiplies rather than just adds one thing after another. Well, I want to finish this up by sharing with you how the story of David's heroic men around him finishes. And it comes in two ways. First, there are some snippets of more victories, more hero stories. And then there's just a big long list. And so let's look at a couple of these snippets. You're going to need to flip over to chapter 23. 
flip over to 23, and we're going to start in verse 8, and we're going to get some of these snippets of some of these little stories. We already saw four dudes killing four giants, but now it's even going to get more serious than that. Check it out. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Josheb Bashabeth, a Tachamonite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Pause there for just a moment because that's just, that's big, okay? Now, you can kill one guy with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot. He's still just one guy. But killing 800 guys in one encounter, that's the stuff of legends. And I'll be honest with you, I don't know how to understand this passage. Because does that mean he was the commander when 800 of these enemies were killed? And so he gets the credit for 800? Or does that mean dude with a spear and nothing else manages to matrix neo iron man you know some ninja superhero manages to wipe out 800 other dudes now of course we know that if this was a movie they'd all come at him one at a time and that's doable but this is we're talking real life how does this happen i don't know the text doesn't tell us because that's not the point the point is for you and me to know that david had one of those guys <laughs> like David had that guy. Now, I, I want to highlight something for you. Just by this is a side note. This is an aside. This is a bonus piece of information for you. Uh, but this passage here illustrates something for us about the scripture that is important for Christians to know, although it's not like applicable to my message today. So this is not exactly sermon moment. I'm going to step just to the side of that, and I'm going to step into academic teaching moment for just a moment to give you perspective. If you want to take a nap now, would be a great time, and then you know come back in about five minutes. But we're going to skip over to 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 11. So it's a whole lot of ones there. 1 Chronicles 1, 1, 1, 1. And it says this. It's the same account of David's 30 mighty men, starting with the three. And it starts like this. This is the list of David's mighty warriors. Jashabim, a Hakmonite, was chief of the officers. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed in one encounter. If you still have your Bibles open or your apps, scroll back a little bit and look at what's on the screen and compare it to what we just read in 2 Samuel, and you will see it is exactly the same except for all the details. First of all, the guy's name here is Jashabim, but the guy's name in Samuel is Joshabashabeth. The guy up here is a Hakmonite, but the guy in 2 Samuel is a Tachmonite. This guy was chief of the officers. This guy was chief of the three. This guy raised his spear against 300 men. This guy raised his spear against 800 men, whom he killed in one encounter, whom he killed in one encounter the first guy in the list in Chronicles 11, 1 Chronicles 11, has a different name, and he kills a different number of people, and he is from a different area. But the different area sounds awfully similar to his area, and the different name is also similar to his name, and 800 and 300 actually are similar in a lot of ways. I mean, in the way we write it with Arabic numerals, the eight and the three could easily be confused for one another. And the way they did it back then, they followed different rules, but it's that kind of thing. And so I want to let you know, and this might shake some of you a little bit, but a large number of scholars think that Second Samuel I'm going to be cautious about this. Remember, I'm not in preacher mode right now. I'm in, I'm in teacher mode, academic teacher mode right now. A lot of scholars think that the stuff in 2 Samuel is an error, is incorrect. And I'll tell you why. Reason number one, it is very easy in Hebrew to convert the word hakmonite which is a word that ancient people knew. Hakam, 
was an actual town where people could be from. It's easy to convert Hackmanite to Tacmanite accidentally, and there is no Tacman town, and no one knew the word Tacmanite back then. And so as a result, Tacmanite makes no sense. Hackmanite does. And then Joshabashabeth is a whole lot of syllables that easily come from an earlier line in the text in the other passage. See, here's the thing that you need to know about how we got the Bible. The Bible was originally written down by people who were inspired by God to put down on paper things that were important for us to know and for us to know through the centuries. And God preserved that. And all the things that God put into the text through the hand and heart of the people who wrote it, all of those things God has tried to preserve throughout the years. And when God tries to do something, he wins. He succeeds. But there are also some things that sometimes get changed. Like, for example, misspelling Hackmanite into Tacmanite, and then it gets copied a whole bunch of times. Or there's a, a word that goes from one word to a slightly different word, and then it gets copied a bunch of times. And the glorious thing is that in Samuel, we actually have the account in 2 Samuel, and we can compare it to the account in 1 Chronicles, and we can understand they're probably talking about the same dude. There's just a different way of writing his name, a different way of writing his town. Someone made an error there. Maybe it's 800, maybe it's 300. I tell you, it doesn't even matter whether it's 800 or 300 because both are insane. You know, if you can kill 300 people with a spear, that's, I mean, you might as well just kill 500 more, right? I mean, it's just, it's the, it's the same basic thing. Both dudes are just absolutely behemoths in the warrior community, right? Let me illustrate this just a little bit. On Friday, it's our family's uh, pizza night. We like to get pizza on Friday night. And this last uh, Friday, my kids were coming back from college. And so we wanted to get good pizza, you know, like the, the really good stuff. And so uh, one of the kids suggested, or maybe my wife suggested, I can't remember, uh, our favorite pizza in town that costs more money than you know, when we make it at home, is Bruno's. I don't know if you've experienced that. It's a good place. Uh, this is not an ad because they made a massive mistake. And I took a picture of it and I want you to see the massive mistake they made with my pizza on Friday night. Here you go. Let's put it up on the screen. Do you, do you see that? Do you see the atrocious thing that they did with my pizza? Okay, I know some of you don't know this because maybe you've only ever heard my name or you haven't actually. That is not the way to spell my last name. I'll zoom in on it just so you can see it. They they spelled it atrociously with like a C and an H. My name isn't Michaels. You know, that's not the way you pronounce my name. My name is Michaels. And that makes no sense in the world, right? That the way they spelled my name was just absolutely horrific. And I'm like, how can this egregious problem ever be resolved? But guess what? I still gave them my money and I still took my pizza, right? And they still gave it to me because it doesn't matter how they think I spell my name. All that matters is that pizza was mine. And see, here's the thing. A lot of times we get, we get so uptight about a thing like two passages in Scripture that look like they're contradicting, contradicting each other. And someone might even say to you, don't you know the Bible has all these contradictions in it? And you're like, okay. So when I misspell your name, is that a contradiction or is that a mistake? And is it possible that the people who copied the Bible could make mistakes even though the author of the Bible didn't? Are those sorts of things possible? And so all of this side aside thing is that I want you to be people who have a confidence in the scripture that you have. I want you to know that what God has written for us is for us. And it is good and it is true. And God has done an immense amount of work, not only to preserve it, but also to give us comparisons so that we can do our own work of reconstructing what the original might have been. Here's the point. Trust your Bible, even though the text we have today has some minor mistakes in it. Now, most of those mistakes are actually in the book of 2 Samuel. So that's just, it was a good illustration for it today. Um, the New Testament, we are almost like 99.999% sure that we know the exact letters that were written down. But in the Old Testament, it's a little bit different. You can trust the scripture that you have because it's still saying the same thing. 
All right, let's move on. So here's this guy, and he kills 800 or 300. We don't know if it's the same guy. It might be two different guys. We're not exactly sure all those details. We just know that David has one of those guys on his staff, and that's important. Keep going. Let's get to uh, the next verse, verse 9. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Ahahite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. You don't have to know all the names. Just know that David and this other dude stood in front of a bunch of Philistines and taunted them. I love that picture. It just makes me think that, you know, trash talking is not a new phenomenon. It's a thing that we've had fun with for a long time. Anyway, then the Israelites retreated, but Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. So he, all by himself, I don't know if David stayed with him because David's name isn't mentioned, but Eliezer all by himself is killing so many Philistines that his hand freezes to his sword and he's just like, I can't even, and then everybody comes back. And then keep going, here's one more. Then it says, next to him was Shema, son of Agi, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's, weird detail, Israel's troops fled from them, but Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. I just picture this guy standing in the middle of this big field. He's all by himself, and he's like, come and get me. You know, you can just pick, it's movie-making magic right there. And again, David has one of these guys in his entourage. Keep going. This gets even better. During harvest time, three of the 30 chief warriors, these three we've just been looking at, came down to David at the cave of Adullam while a band of Philistines were encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was in the stronghold and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this. He said, is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. This is while David is hiding from King Saul. Saul is running around trying to kill David. David's hiding from him. David's in this cave. And David's like, you know what? I just, I remember the well in front of Bethlehem. He's just musing. He's just remembering. I remember the well in front of the gate of Bethlehem. Oh man, that was some good water. What I wouldn't give for just a, just a cup of that water. And he's just thinking out loud. He's just imagining how awesome would it be if I could be home again and have some water from the well right in front of my hometown. How awesome would that be? And these three dudes overhear it. And they get together and they say, come on, let's go get David some water. And then they do the 12-mile march, probably in the middle of the night. 12-mile march, maybe run, so they can get to Bethlehem, so they can break through Philistine lines, so they can get some water from this well, so they can bring it back. Just a cup of water. Just craziness. Just ludicrous craziness. The kind of loyalty these guys are demonstrating to David, the kind of love they have for David is unfathomable. The guy who stands in the field and says, come and get me. The guy whose hand freezes to the sword. The guy who kills 800 men with a spear. These guys are like, no, we'll risk our lives to get a glass of water for David. And they come back and they give him this cup. They give him this whatever's holding the water. And he says, are you nuts? You guys risked your lives? That means this is no longer water. This is blood. It just so happened that you never shed any of your own blood. But it was your blood that caused you, your heart that caused you, your love that caused you to go and do this thing for me. There is no way in the world I'm ever going to drink something this precious. He says, the only one who deserves something like this is God in heaven. And he pours it on the ground the way you would for a drink offering in Israelite times. And this gives you a picture of David and his relationship with his men that is something I, I have to say. We, we need to keep this in mind. 
David's relationship with his men was one of mutual sacrifice. And the attitude that his men had to sacrifice themselves for him was not one way. We live in a world today, and they lived in a world back then, where the leader had other people sacrifice for the leader. That's the world that we live in, where the powerful leader says, you sacrifice for me, you sacrifice for me, you sacrifice for me. And David will not do that. He will not embrace that. They sacrifice almost their lives for him. They risk their lives for him to do this thing. And he looks at them and he says, guess what? I'm joining the sacrifice. Guess what? I'm here with you in the sacrifice. We have now together made this a sacrifice to God. He is the real authority. He is the real leader. We are going to be mutually sacrificial to each other and before God. And David says, I am going to dedicate your life to God. It's an amazing little thing. And it's one of the things that I want us to remember, whether you're a leader or a follower, that mutual sacrifice is what's really called for. But then one more. One more. Let's read the list. Okay? Here we go. Uh, We're at verse 18 now. Abishai, the brother of Joab, son of Zeruiah, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 300 men whom he killed. And so he became as famous as the three. Was he not held in greater honor than the three? He became their commander, even though he was not included among them. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a violent valiant fighter from Kabzeel performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also, I love this. This is just a weird story. By the way, he says, he also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. What is that all about? It's just weird, weird details. It's one of those things where it's like, that's not legendary. That's something that must have actually happened because you don't just make up a story like that and only put it in one sentence, right? You don't say, oh, and by the way, he went into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion, and let's move on to the next story, right? You embellish that a little bit if you're making it. Anyway, so he kills a lion on a snowy day in a pit, and he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. I'm like, dude, the dude, he kills a lion in a snowy pit. It's hard to kill a lion normally, let alone when it's snowing, let alone when you're in a pit with the lion. What in the world? This guy is a beast and he's still not good enough to be in charge of the three. He takes an Egyptian down. He takes a club. The the whole thing. It's just amazing. You know, all these things are better than anything David ever did. I mean, think about that. One day David goes out, he kills Goliath. Yeah, that's a big thing. One day. But from that moment on, David is always doing stuff with other people, right? We see David doing all of his stuff with other people. But these dudes, this dude's in the middle of a field. Come and get me. This other dude's killing 800 people with a spear. This other guy goes up to a giant, you know, with a, from Egypt. He goes up to a giant who's got a spear and he's only got a club. And somehow he takes the spear away from the other guy and stabs him with I don't, All of these guys, all of these guys have exploits that are more impressive than David. All of them. And David has them on his team. I want to read the final list. Okay, here we go. I'm going to try to do the names as well as I can. I don't know why I'm going to read them all out loud, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Among the 30 were Asahel, the brother of Joab, Elhanan, son of Dodo from Bethlehem, Shema the Herodite, Elika the Herodite, Helez the Paltite, Ira son of Ikesh from Tekoa, Abiezer from Anathoth, Sibekai the Hushathite, Zalman the Ahohite, Mahari the Netophathite, Heled son of Baana the Netophathite, Ithai son of Ribai from Ribai, that's good. Mm. From Gibeah in Benjamin, Benja- Beniah the Pirithonite, Hidai from the ravines of Gash, Abialban from the Arbathite, Asmaveth the Barhamite, Elihaba, Eliaba the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan son of Shama the Hararite, Ahiam son of Sharar the Hararite, Eliphalet son of Abishai the Maakathite. Eliam, son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezro, the Carmelite, Parai, the Arbite, Egal, son of Nathan. Nathan's an easy one. 
from Zobah, the son of Hagri, Zelek, the Ammonite, Naharai, the Berethite, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gareb, the Ithrite, and Uriah, the Hittite. I didn't recognize any of those names until the last one. There were 37 in all, but one of them gets the last name. Uriah was the one who was so loyal to David that when David brought him back from the fighting and said, Uriah, go home and spend the evening with your wife, Uriah said, no. I'm going to stay right here by the palace and be faithful to my king and be faithful to the battle that is still raging out there. And the next day, David got Uriah drunk and said, now go home and be with your wife. And Uriah, even when drunk, was more honorable than David when sober. And so Uriah went back out to the field. And that's when David had the army do a thing that left him out in the open where he was killed. Because Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba, the woman that David had violated. And his name shows up last to highlight for us that David had all of these kinds of men with him. He didn't earn them. He didn't deserve them. He had them. I don't know who God has put in your life, and I don't know if you've earned them. I don't know if you've deserved them. I don't know who God has put in your life. I don't know what kind of heroes God has put in your life, and I don't know who you are the hero for in their life. I don't know how that works. What I know is that David was a man who never succeeded on his own. David was a man who always was surrounded by others. And whatever he did that was right was something that inspired other people to do what they did. David was an inspiration in so many ways. And David had his flaws, and David didn't deserve any of all of this stuff, but God had graciously surrounded him with some incredible people. And you and I are the same. I think God would have us understand that he has surrounded us with some incredible people. And so I want to give you just a couple questions here as we close out our time. You know, there might be some time when you need to stand alone, but those moments are rare except for very rare moments. You do not need to fight a battle alone, except for rare moments. You do not need to stand by yourself, except for rare moments. God has designed you to be a person with people. God has designed you to be a person surrounded by other heroes. And God has designed you to be a person who's a hero for other people. And so I want to ask you two final questions. One, are you a leader? Are you a follower? Are you a leader now? And if in some way you are a leader, I want you to be a leader like David. A leader who will not fight every battle your own, but a leader who inspires others. A leader who gets loyalty from your followers, not because you have demanded it, but because you are as sacrificial as they are. A leader who is doing that thing well. And if you make your mistake, if you have your Uriah moment, then at least have the guts to stand up and say, that was all me. That was my fault. That was my failure. None of you should have to pay for my failure in this moment. But if you are a leader, embrace the fact that God has surrounded you with people. You are not doing this alone. And if you are a follower, embrace the fact that your job is to play one part in this much bigger picture. And if you play that part well, one of these days you might also find yourself in a place of leadership. But none of us can say that we're doing it on our own. And none of us can say that we deserve what we've gotten. And none of us can say that we stand on our own two feet. Because we, just like David, have been surrounded by people far more capable than us. But if we're doing this right, we experience the glory together. And nowhere is that more true than in God's grace to you and me through Jesus. Jesus is capable of way more than you. 
Jesus' exploits far outpace your own. Jesus is not just the mighty three, one of the mighty three or one of the mighty 30. Jesus is the mightiest one. And what is astonishing is that Jesus would fight your battle. And Jesus would rescue you. And Jesus would invite you to get the glory of his victory. I want to invite you today to just simply re-enter into that place of surrender all over again. For some reason, Jesus treats us like David, and he takes on the role of any one of these superheroes who defends him, who protects him, who rescues him. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together, and when we do, I want you to take that bread, eat that bread or cracker, whatever it is, and as you do, say, Jesus, I remember that you gave your body for me. You sacrificed your life for me. Your body was broken that I could be healed. And as you drink the grape juice, I want you to say in your heart, Jesus, I recognize that your blood has been spilled for me. And I completely did not deserve it. But I drink this to receive it. I drink this to receive and to say thanks for your sacrifice for me. And if you came planning to bring a financial gift as well, put it in the basket and say, God, you have blessed me with so much I don't deserve that I'm returning to you this this little portion. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in any of these things. We just want you to be a person who can say, Jesus, I receive you all over again. And if today you are receiving him into your life and submitting yourself to his lordship, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, please join us. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.